We are in Proverbs chapter 11. Proverbs chapter 11. And we're speaking of this couplet of distinctive character that benefits the believer, the gracious woman that gets far more than even uh, the powerful um, individual can. The powerful man can only get riches, but the gracious woman without power, but with influence and the magnetism of a good character, she's able to get what the rich man looks for beyond riches, looks for honor. And then in verse 17 is where we are right now, the merciful man. The merciful man doeth good to his own nefesh, to his own being, to his own inner being. He does himself a favor by being merciful to others. And we have talked about a number of illustrations that, that uh, tell us about this. The Kenites, uh, David in his kindness shown to Mephibosheth, Jonathan in his kindness shown to David, Job in his um, willingness finally to pray for his friends. He found healing himself. Cornelius, a man who um, did good and gave alms, a merciful man, even though it couldn't get him to heaven, yet God paid special attention in getting the gospel through Peter to Cornelius. And he made comment that he was a good man and had and had given alms. Therefore, Peter was given this uh, responsibility. We talked about the Maltese on the island of Malta and how God reciprocated their, the mercy shown to the people that had shipwrecked. We talked about the Roman centurion and uh, the, the fact that uh, he was also a man like Cornelius. Uh, all the Romans were not cruel. And the Lord Jesus Christ paid special attention to him by healing his son. I want you to turn just to a couple more verses on the first part of this text. Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. And verse 10. Now, remember that Paul is writing to these Hebrew Christians and he has, ta he has been talking about a very uh, difficult subject and dealing with the whole question of salvation and the security of the believer and uh, the, the whole process of uh, these Jewish individuals, some of whom had returned to because of pressure uh, to the sacrifices uh, that had been given previously and had forsaken the concepts that the New Testament uh, is pressing home. But it says in verse 9, Beloved, we are persuaded better things of you. Uh, Paul is setting in contrast those that are reading this. There were a minority of people who had, uh, had turned back but he says, we're persuaded of better things of you and things that accompany salvation. Notice that text. Things that accompany salvation. I think that, again, we're talking about showing mercy. Remember that we're not saying that showing mercy is going to save somebody. And obviously, showing mercy in the power and the energy of the flesh is not going to profit. That's not the point. But there are things that accompany salvation. 
There are characteristics of the believer through the Spirit. It's love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, faith, goodness, meekness, self-control, against which there's no law. Don't have to wonder whether that person, the person that shows those characteristics, is a Christian. It's a demonstration of the character of the Spirit. And therefore, because he has that character, by their fruit you shall know them. And so showing mercy is not something that you do to obtain salvation, but rather showing mercy is that which is uh, a characteristic of the person with a relationship with Jesus Christ. They accompany salvation. So it says in verse 10, notice now, For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love which ye have shown toward his name in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. Now remember that when you are, are doing something for someone else, you are doing it as the personal representative of Jesus Christ. There's a verse in the book of Acts that says that Jesus Christ went about doing good. Now I realize that the major thrust of the ministry and life of the Lord Jesus Christ was the cross. But Christ was not so heavenly minded, he was no earthly good. Christ did not focus upon the goal down the line to the place that he neglected the daily responsibility. In his three and a half years of ministry, he went out of his way to touch people. And you see, so much so that the liberal gets the idea that Christ was just this great example, which is ludicrous in the light of what the New Testament teaches. Christ was not just a great example. He was the Savior of the world, the God-man come according to the... Uh, the virgin birth, died on the cross for our sins, was raised the third day. There's nothing in the New Testament that says that any healing that he did, any compassion he showed could save one individual. He could have shown compassion to all those people. They would have gone straight to hell if he hadn't gone to the cross. But don't forget that even though, even though the Lord Jesus Christ's death is the thing that saves us and not his example... Yet his life was a flowing out of mercy because that is characteristic of God. And God says, I won't forget when you do things like that. God's going to remember that. If he noticed it in a pagan like Cornelius, if Christ noticed it in a pagan like the Roman centurion, then he's going to notice when you minister to the saints. And there's all too little real showing of mercy today. But when you show mercy, God reciprocates. He takes notice. And when you minister to the saints, Paul said, do good to all men. In the book of Galatians, do good to all men, especially to those of the household of faith. Now, don't get overbalanced here. Don't think, okay, well, I'm going to show mercy to believers. I'm not going to show mercy to unbelievers. No, that's not the point. You do good to all men. But there should be a special level of concern that you have for one another. Because, again, Francis Schaeffer speaks of the final apologetic. The final apologetic is, by this shall all men know you are my disciples. How? 
because you show love one to another. Love, agape love, love in action. So, do yourself a favor. Show mercy. The Lord will not forget your work and labor of love which you have shown toward his name by ministering to the saints. The other text is in Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. And verse 42. Now I don't want you to misunderstand when you get to Matthew 24 and 25, the Olivet Discourse, there is the text of Scripture that says, Inasmuch as you've done it on the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. And that passage of Scripture is, is speaking specifically of helping people during that tribulation period. Because Matthew 24 and 25 is dealing with the end times. And it's my conviction that the church is raptured and it's the tribulation saints that are going to demonstrate that they're true saints. They're going to, the proof is in the pudding. During that time of terrible persecution and tribulation, there is going to be a special kindness shown to the people of God, shown to one another. You know, right now, you know, if, you, uh, if your house uh, falls down, chances are you've got insurance. You don't need me. Now, that doesn't mean that I can't help out if you do need it, but um, we, we're so secure in isolation today. And uh, sometimes, although I'm not a prophet of doom, and I certainly wouldn't wish this on anyone, but sometimes I wish uh, that, that instead of being so secure in the system that we've been able to set up, so self-sufficient, that we, were, that we were forced to be more dependent on each other. Christians in Germany during the Nazi regime uh, had, to, had to reach out and, and care for each other in a special way. And uh, believe me, there's going to be great reward given in a future day for those that in a time of crisis reached out and cared for those round about them, particularly where there was that great risk. There have been periods of history where Christians have had to pull together like we don't have to today, and it's been to their benefit. But we ought to do it whether we need it or not, all right? That's the point. But what I'm saying is that text of Scripture so often applied to the way we ought to treat each other is primarily speaking of that treatment during the tribulation. But this text of Scripture is not in that same context. It says in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 42, And whosoever shall give to drink unto one of these little ones a cup of cold water only in the name of a disciple, verily I say unto you, he shall in no way lose his reward. It's almost precisely the same thing. But it's not limited to that tribulation period in the same way. So the application of that which we find in Matthew 24 and 25 is... Is, is good here as well. We give something, we visit people. You know, the, the, the picture there is that the Lord's going to say, uh, thank you for visiting me. Thank you for giving me a drink of water. Thank you for helping me. They say, Lord, when did we do that? Oh, he says, inasmuch as you've done it unto one of these, the least of my brother, you've done it unto me. 
see the attitude of God? You want to do yourself a favor. You will cultivate that fruit of the Spirit which is mercy. But in contrast to that, in the antithesis here, in this antithetic dishtick, there is this word. You've got a choice. You can be one or the other, the merciful man or the cruel. Now, let's talk about the cruel man a little bit. Here's the word, A-K-Z-A-R-I-Y. Exari means, well, it comes from a root, exar, which means the insensitive one. The insensitive person, the one with a lack of compassion. Instead of that merciful man, that merciful man who does good to his own soul, that individual who, who is kased, who has loyal love, he is the man who is cruel, the man who lacks mercy. Akzar is uh, an interesting word. Let me just give you some texts. Deuteronomy chapter 32. talking here about those that do not love the Lord. They become a nation void of counsel and no understanding. And if the vine is the vine of Sodom, well, that's a description of the modern day. Vine is the vine of Sodom. This is in verse 32 of Deuteronomy 32. Their fields of Gomorrah, their grapes are the grapes of gall, their clusters are bitter, their wine is the poison of serpents, and the cruel venom of asps, or the cobra, the cruel venom. Now, I don't know a lot about snake bites when it comes to cobra and some of those uh, exotic um, reptiles but having been been raised a part of my life and had my early ministry in the state of Montana I know about rattlers and I have seen guys bitten by rattlesnakes and I've seen the way that in moments those two little holes in their leg suddenly become inflamed they break out in a cold sweat, fever begins, and believe me, you've got to do something. You've got to do it fast. Poison spreading right through. Interesting that this word is used to describe the poison of a rattlesnake, poison of a cobra. Imagine, the cobra's venom is even more deadly than the rattlesnake. The rattlesnake is a pussycat compared to some of those exotic reptiles. But think of it. Here's the description of, of a man who's like that. Cruel venom of asps. Job 30. Job 30 and verse 21. 
Job's going through this this terrible, terrible pressure. Pressure not only of losing his family and losing his fortune, losing his health, but then as well having his friends come and accuse him of, uh, of having some secret sin and uh, telling him that if he wasn't sinful, he wouldn't be sick. And uh, he's crying out. You can, you can see this. You can start anywhere in this chapter 30 and you can see how... How, how, how the tears are flowing from the, from the eyes of his heart as, as he says in verse 17 my bones are pierced in me in the night season my sinews take no rest by the great force of my disease as my garment changed it bindeth me about like the collar of my coat uh, he has cast me into the mire and I'm become like dust and ashes I cry unto thee and thou dost not hear me I stand up and thou regardest me not and here's what he says, and oh, how we have to identify with him here as he's, as he's justifying himself and as he's, he's trying to understand, and his words are expressing the true nature of his heart at this point. Fifty-five times in this chapter he uses the word I or me or my, you know, so he's, he's, he's thinking of himself. He, he's not focusing upon the character of God. And what does he say? Thou art become cruel to me become cruel to me. Lord, you're not showing me any compassion. Of course, that wasn't true. But the way he saw it, as he was feeling sorry for himself and having a good dose of self-pity, he forgot the character of God, which essentially is Kassad. His mercy endures forever. And he says, Thou art become cruel to me with thy strong hand. Thou oppressest thyself against me and liftest me up to the wind, and so on. There's that word, that root word, akzar again. Over in chapter 41 of Job. Chapter 41 and verse 10. Here the word in the King James is translated fierce. None is so fierce that dares stir him up. Who then is able to stand before him? It's using that, that uh, very picturesque picture of the uh, Leviathan and the the uh, um, idea the, the the picture that is given here is that of of, of satanic oppression really and uh, he says none is so fierce that dares to stir him up what kind of a man does it take to take on this prehistoric monster it takes a fierce man it takes a man who who has no no fear, who has no heart, who has no, no normal responses. That's the, the picture that he's painting there. And then the other place where this word akzar is emphasized is in the book of Lamentations. You know the book of Lamentations. It's quite a book. Lamentations is, is a, an acrostic book. The whole book is an acrostic, which means that, that it was written uh, in a literary form whereby each verse begins with a, with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet in succession. And uh, that's why there are 22 verses in most of the chapters. The chapter that doesn't have 22 verses has 66 because it's a triple acrostic. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, that's the picture of the book of Lamentations. It was written by Jeremiah after the fall of Jerusalem and... Uh, the, the 
lamentation is the, the picture of, of a people weeping for the city that they loved and looked to. And when Nebuchadnezzar came in in his third invasion, he destroyed the city utterly. It's in that context that we find chapter 4 and verse 3, where again it's talking now about, about the uh, sea monsters and the uh, leviathons, the various wild animals. It says in verse 3, even the sea monsters draw out the breast. They nurse their young ones. The daughter of my people is become cruel like ostriches in the wilderness. I don't know a whole lot about ostriches, uh, but the uh, Jeremiah apparently did. And uh, he is talking about terrible, terrible tragedy here. And he compares it to the cruelty of the ostrich in the wilderness. Now that's the way the 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 word is is used in its root form and i uh dr cohen the author of the sunoco series um, of uh, commentaries on the old testament a jewish author writes uh for the the uh, uh, alternate translation to this word cruel he uses two words harsh and self-centered harsh and self-centered Again, thinking back to Job chapter 30, Job in his self-pity was willing to accuse God of being cruel because what was happening to him from his point of view was, was cruel. He was saying God is, God is harsh. God is self-centered. He's not thinking of me. Now remember that the person who shows mercy is others-centered. The person who is cruel is self-centered. He's thinking of himself. Thus, there's a harshness in dealing with people. Now, the word, the form that we are using here in this text is also used in some other places in Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 5 is an example. Let's go back there. Proverbs 5 and uh, verse Talking about the strange woman, talking about her enticements, it says in verse 8, Remove thy way far from her, come not near the door of her house, lest thou give thine honor unto others, and thy years unto the cruel. This particular place, it's talking about the fact that when you get involved in immorality, it puts you at the mercy of men who have no mercy. It puts you in a position where uh, you will be dealing with a, you deal with an entirely different crowd when you get involved in immorality and you find yourself actually a slave to a cruel taskmaster, not only to individuals, but to the lifestyle that comes as a result of immorality. It's called Akzari. Chapters 12 and verse 10. Now here's a good verse for the, the uh, Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. All right? A righteous man regardeth the life of his beast, but the tender mercies, the tenderest moment of the wicked are cruel. 
Again, remember that word wicked is the word ra. It can be rasha, it can be ra'a, it can be various intensities of ra, but the root word ra means one thing. It means wrong. And we, we think of wicked as the guy who's really, really, really bad. And it can mean that person. What is the wicked person? The wicked person is a person who does one thing wrong, does another thing wrong, does another thing wrong. And when he gets to a certain level of wrongness, we call him wicked. God calls him wicked when he makes the first wrong. All right? God says he's wicked. God says he's wrong. And remember that even paranoia, a lot of people, you know, use these psychological terms, throw them around, you know. Uh, in fact, I, I read a story the other day about the guy who, uh, the guy who uh, laying on the psychiatrist's couch and... Uh, I think I told this last week. Anyway, I'll say it again. He's laying on psychiatrist's couch and he said, could you split my personality? Said, what, do you, what, what do you want me to split your personality for? He says, I'm so lonely. Yeah, well, anyway, you know, they, people get the, get the idea of all of, the, all of these things and, and schizophrenia and paranoia and all of these fancy terms. Now listen, paranoia is fear. And the Bible talks about it, right? All the phobias, claustrophobia, and uh, agoraphobia, and astrophobia. Listen, God says that the man who does wrong runs when no man chases him. The wicked run when no man chases him. The righteous are as bold as a lion. That's where paranoia is. The answer to paranoia is be righteous. The righteous man is as bold as a lion. If you want to get over your fears, then you will do what God wants you to do. Live according to God's standard. Let the Bible be your plumb line. All right? But you see, the person that does wrong has all kinds of things that are characteristic of him. And this is a fascinating verse. Here the righteous man is kind to animals. Okay? But here is a man who is, who is wrong, who, is, who has made some wrong decisions. He has a wrong focus. His life is oriented in a wrong way. And what does he do? This man, at his tenderest moment, even when he's at the peak of his mercy, is still cruel, is still unmerciful, still has no compassion, still doesn't care. He loses his capacity and his capability to demonstrate true mercy. You know, the, the thing that is fascinating in our age is to see a person standing in line to protest something, protest the killing of the baby seals or the killing of the whales and all of that, and at the same time, the same person is out screaming for abortion rights. Isn't that amazing? Abort babies, but don't abort seals. That strange set of values. Save the snail darter. <laughs> but give us federal money so that everybody who wants to can get an abortion. No compassion. I heard, you know, you heard this 
this story of Baby Doe. I read that thing and I, my, I wept. My heart broke. Oh, tragic. Then I picked up the newspaper. You know, I read about this bag of fetuses that they found in the garbage dump. Big pile. And they looked at these tiny little infants and they were, they were real. I mean, they had fingers and they had everything that human beings had. And, you know, it broke my heart. And I, I heard somebody on television talking about that shortly afterward. And they were, they were saying that was garbage. Just garbage. How many, what kind of stupid people go out and rummage around in garbage? That's all it was, was garbage. What are they saying? It's hard to believe, isn't it? See, man has made some wrong choices. And as they make wrong choices, their heart becomes more and more cruel. Less and less compassionate. More and more insensitive. So that the righteous, and by the way, you see, you've got to, if you're going to be righteous, you can't not care about your beast. You've got to, you've got to have an attitude that, of compassion that even reaches to that level. Now, that doesn't mean you put beasts above men. It always bothers me that, that there is more uh, you know, billions of dollars going to dog food in this country and, and meanwhile, uh, very little by comparison to charitable organizations, to missions, and, and so on and so on. Church giving is a, uh, just a small amount compared to the dog food purchases in this country. I think that we have made animals idols. We've, we've uh, uh, stopped worshiping the creator and we're worshiping the creature in many cases. That's, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the fact that your compassion toward people will extend, it will be so broad that it'll even touch in that area, clear down there to where the animals are, because the righteous man regardeth the life of his beast. He's not going to just deliberately be cruel to animals. It's so ludicrous sometimes to hear of some guy that's poisoned a bunch of dogs in the area, and when he marches into the jail, he's carrying his Bible. I just want to say, oh, please. You know, terrible. Because we want to be identified as that kind of thing. It's just not true. If you're a merciful person, you'll be merciful to people, first and foremost. You'll care about people. But it'll extend even to the place that, that you're, you're going to be kind to animals. Isn't that interesting? All right, let's go to chapter 17. An evil man seeketh only rebellion. Therefore, a cruel messenger shall be set against him. The idea being that the evil man, because he's, he himself is seeking rebellion because of his own attitude, no matter what comes into his life, it's going to be a cruel messenger. Isn't it amazing where, where people have mercy, they can see even in the difficulties of life the messenger from God. But the person who has no mercy, can't see mercy in anything. That's why Job was having such a tough time. Job himself was self-centered in Job 30, thinking only of himself. As a result, he, he couldn't grasp the mercy of God. Couldn't understand how God could be merciful when he sent this. So all he saw was that he had cruel messengers sent to him. That's why God had to deal with Job. 
about his own self-righteousness. Now, over in Isaiah 13, our word is used as well. Isaiah chapter 13. And verse 9. Now we're talking about what the Lord will be in a coming day. Behold, the day of the Lord cometh. Day of the Lord cometh cruel, both with wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and he shall destroy the sinners out of it. Now you remember that in our study of mercy, we saw that when a man is not merciful, there will be a sense in which no mercy will be shown to him. And there is a day, a day of judgment, where there will not be a demonstration of mercy. Doesn't mean that the mercy of God has changed. Not at all. But man has chosen to face the wrath of God. And the result is that when the wrath of God comes, it'll be the wrath of God without let up, without mercy. Man's judgment is going to be final. Jeremiah chapter 6. Jeremiah chapter 6. That's why it's so important you don't harden your heart against the gospel. A day can come where there is no longer mercy extended. It says in verse 23 of a Jeremiah 6, now it's talking about the nations coming down upon the nation of, of Israel. It says, they come from the north country, they shall lay hold on bow and spear. They are cruel and have no mercy. Now there's a perfect parallel. They are cruel and they have no mercy. That puts our contrast in very clear light. Because here's this invading army. They're not only cruel in the sense they have no, no sensitivity, but they have no loyal love at all. No kissed at all. Their voice roars like the sea. They ride upon horses, set in array as men for war against the O daughter of Zion. Israel, of course, experienced that in a, a time where Nebuchadnezzar came down upon them. Jeremiah 30. Jeremiah 30 and verse 14. Again, the tribulation period now and uh, time of Jacob's trouble, time of great distress, says all thy lovers have forgotten thee. They seek thee not, for I have wounded thee with the wound of an enemy, with the chastisement of a cruel one. For the multitude of thine iniquity, because thy sins were increased, the wages of sin is death. Thou shalt surely die. When God is left out of one's life, there is ultimately a judgment. And God says, it's as though you were being chastened, not by a loving father who chastened you for your good, but it was as though you were being chastened by a cruel taskmaster, by a heartless individual. That's the way that judgment will seem to those that receive it. Jeremiah chapter 50 and verse 42. Jeremiah 50, verse 42. Precisely the same as the earlier verse. They shall hold the bow and lance. 
they are cruel and will not show mercy. Their voice shall roar like the sea as you ride upon horses, put everyone put in array like a man in the battle against thee, O daughter of Babylon. This now is the judgment of the nations. Now, a related word to our word for cruel is in Proverbs chapter 27 and verse 4, where it says, Wrath is cruel. Wrath is cruel. The The idea of wrath in this particular case is that that there is a there is a haughty anger, there is a there is, there is a, um, a a uh, an attitude that can arise in the heart of an individual, even a merciful person, to the place that when he's very very upset, very angry, he forgets even mercy, and rather than showing mercy, he shows cruelty, he shows insensitivity. So it says, wrath is cruel, anger is outrageous, but who is able to stand before envy? One more verse, Deuteronomy 28. Deuteronomy 28. And verse 50. This now is... Uh, talking about the people of Israel in terms of their, their, the judgment of God upon them and the fact that they uh, would turn from the Lord and the Lord would have to send invaders into their land. It says in verse 49, the Lord shall bring a nation against thee from far from the end of the earth as swift as the eagle flieth, a nation whose tongue thou shalt not understand, a nation of fierce countenance. Now, the Syrians conquered the ten northern tribes, and the Babylonians conquered Judah and Benjamin, and uh, which was the southern kingdom. This, of course, was the prediction of the of the whole picture by Moses right after uh, the people had come to Kadesh Barnea and about ready to enter into the land. Notice, though, a nation of fierce or cruel countenance. That's our, that's our word right there. Nation of fierce countenance who shall not regard the person of the old, nor shall favor to the young. He shall eat the fruit of thy cattle, the fruit of thy land, until thou be destroyed. Who also shall not leave thee either grain, wine, or oil, or the increase of thy cows, or the flocks of thy sheep, until he have destroyed thee. He shall besiege thee with all thy gates, until thy high and fortified walls come down, wherein thou trustest. Notice they're trusting their walls rather than trusting the Lord. Throughout all thy land, and he shall besiege thee in all thy gates throughout all thy land, which the Lord thy God has given thee. Thou shalt eat the fruit of thine own body, the flesh of thy sons, which happened in the, the siege, the flesh of thy sons and of thy daughters, whom the Lord thy God hath given thee in the siege, and in the distress wherewith thine enemies shall distress thee, so that the man who is tender among you and very delicate, his eyes shall be evil toward his brother and toward the wife of his bosom, toward the remnant of his children whom he shall leave. You see, what happens here is that this great, in this time of invasion, they, they, they would demonstrate this kind of insensitivity, this kind of cruelty on the outside and surrounding the city. And so as a result then, <coughs> the people on the inside begin to squabble among themselves. And one instance is the story of the, the woman who 
who said, came, can you imagine this? Coming, came to the king and said to the king, King, you've got to settle this dispute. I want to sue this woman. Because we, we agree. I'll boil my son today and we'll eat him. And we'll boil her son tomorrow. Imagine this going on. And, and so I boiled my son and she hid her son. We can't find him. And so she owes me a meal. You believe that? But that's the kind of thing that happened under the sea. And it was a part of this, of this tremendous insensitivity and lack of compassion that came to these people. Because, you see, the fascinating thing, one of the reasons that God brought judgment on the nation of Israel in the way that he did was because of their worship of idols. And the, one of the idols that they worshipped was the god Moloch. And Moloch required child sacrifice. Isn't that amazing? And here they got into the routine of offering their children to a false god. And now, in a time where they're under siege, their hearts turned cruel. And they even ate their own children. Uh, you say, well, that could never happen in the United States. Don't bet on it. Don't bet on it. That is, you know, the thing we forget is that the thing that made the Old Testament, you know, they didn't have computers, they didn't have automobiles, they didn't fly in airplanes, all of that, that's the way they're different. But the way they're the same is that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And the record of man's inhumanity to man is something unbelievable. I uh, read concerning Nazi Germany and you say to yourself, you know, how could it ever happen? During the days uh, where they were showing this uh, enormous, and I guess from what I hear, enormously boring uh, epilogue of, of, the, of World War II, uh, the uh, winds of war, uh, they were saying on the news night by night as they were kind of giving the picture, they, they, would, they were saying, um, it's, it's good that we're so sophisticated today that we understand this kind of thing and that we would never let this happen again. You know, that's in a country, that's in a country where, where we're killing millions of innocent babies. And yet, it couldn't happen again. We don't understand the heart of man. God does. And God tells us that if you mess around with living a life with wrong, with wrong priorities, a life where God is not the center, you are capable of things you would never dream today. You're capable of that. God places his plumb line in the midst and my beloved, we need to check ourselves every move we make, every attitude we develop, every part of our character we allow in our life. We need to measure that by God's standard, by God's word, by God's plumb line. God's not going to change his plumb line to suit you. Scripture is God-breathed. It's profitable in four areas. It's profitable, first of all, in the area of doctrine where God tells it like it is. The whole concept of truth, the whole concept of the teaching of the Word of God, the systematic understanding of God's standard. And beloved, that is the standard of God, doctrine, right? Rebuke. The Word of God is given to rebuke you, to show you how far short of that standard you come. 
But the word of God is also given for correction. Correction is, the word means literally to set up straight again. And God's word is given not only to show you what's right and show you how wrong you are, but to show you how you can be right. And then to train you in righteousness. To discipline you in righteousness. To get you to, to, to respond by a change of attitude, a change of lifestyle on a habitual basis. It's not enough to say, all right, I'm going to make this decision. You've got to habitually make that decision. It's a training in righteousness. That's why you need daily exposure to the Word of God. It's not enough to get a little bit here and a little bit there, occasionally picking up a little nugget. You need to systematically understand what God's point of view from Scripture is and then to find out where you, where you have flaws and by His grace, by His Holy Spirit, by the cleansing of the blood of Jesus Christ, bring you back in line with that and then train you to discipline yourself that way so that you begin to you begin to think like God. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. God wants you to think like Christ. Wants you to think like Him. You're not to think like the world. We have the enormous forces on every hand trying to get you to think like the world. And you're bombarded with it. As you're exposed to that, you know what you do? You begin to listen to the counsel of the ungodly. You begin to linger in the seat of the scornful. You begin to listen to what the world says. You begin to buy that garbage. And you know what, what happens? As you begin to buy that garbage more and more, the Word of God becomes dry to you. And you begin to say, really, is, I, I, I don't think that could apply to modern man. I hear that so often from Christian people. You can't impose that standard on modern man. You can't impose those Old Testament things on us. They've picked up this great theological term. We're under grace, not law. Maybe you didn't notice. The New Testament speaks about a new law, the law of Christ. Ah, but that's the law of love. Oh boy, do people have funny ideas about what love is. And they distort the Word of God, just like the Pharisees. They twist the Word of God to suit their own standard. And by it, they make the Word of God of no effect. Cruelty. I tell you, we're capable of it. Let's be careful. But the major thrust of this text is that when the merciful man shows mercy, you know, if I were in need, I'd love to have some merciful people around, right? Because that's going to do me good. That's implied. But explicit in the text is the merciful man does good to his own nephesh, does good to his own soul. But the cruel man troubles his own flesh. Now, I don't have time this morning to go into this word troubleth. But I'll tell you that it's an interesting word that we're going to see subsequently. But in closing, I just want to emphasize the thrust here. Listen to this. The man who is merciful is heavenly minded. 
the man who is merciful has the mind of Christ. The man who is merciful walks with God. He is also the righteous man. All right? This merciful man has a concern about his nephesh. He's concerned about what's happening to the inner man. And so it's addressed there. The believer in Jesus Christ got to hear this. You show mercy, you are doing good to your inner man. But guess what? The cruel man doesn't use the word nephesh. It uses the word for flesh, because after all, that's where his values are. What's the cruel man interested in? The cruel man is interested, what's going to happen to me? What's going to happen to this old bod? What's going to happen to my physical life, to my financial life, to my external life? Solomon, with the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, zeroes in on this and says, Buddy, you show cruelty, you show insensitivity, and you're buying yourself a lot of problems. You're troubling your own flesh. Now, obviously, it affects his soul, too. We saw that when we were talking about the meaning of nephesh. And we were talking, looking up some of those verses that relate to that word and that, that talk about the importance and how the person that commits adultery can destroy his own soul. But with this man saying, look, you're going to have external problems. You're going to have problems in your own flesh. It's amazing, isn't it, how doctors will tell you how, many, how much of sickness today is psychosomatic. The person who determines to be insensitive is responding the way a human being was never intended to respond. Isn't it amazing? Here you have Adam and Eve living in the garden, and they must have had a beautiful relationship. Just imagine what that relationship must have been like. And right after the fall, there first of all was an insensitivity to God hiding, but then when God found them, there was blame shifting, there was no sensitivity, God don't blame me, it's her fault, that was a cruel thing to do, wasn't it, Eve, you know, don't blame me, it's his fault, their heart of compassion was one of the first things to go because of the fall, I'll tell you, you hear this? I have been very interested in studying a number of things that happen normally in terms of sin and uh, that are like signal lights reminding us of our old nature. And one of them is this. You can be sure that when you, when you see a situation and respond with an insensitivity. It's an indication there's something wrong. Ever think of Galatians chapter 6? It says, Brethren, if you find a man overtaken in a fault, restore such an one in a spirit of meekness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Oh, See, a lot of people say, oh, yeah, I'll sure, I'll go over and set that guy right. He's in sin. Oh, you betcha. That's insensitive. You're not really qualified 
to do that until you can see yourself in his shoes and weep. Where your heart is broken because you realize your own sins. Billy Sunday was walking down the street in London with a clergyman and they came to a place where there were a lot of bums and drunks and here was a man who had passed out in the gutter and as they went by the clergyman said to Billy Sunday isn't that disgusting and Billy Sunday who had been an alcoholic tears streaming down his face he says when I see something like that all I can say is except for the grace of God that would be me that's sensitivity and when you are not sensitive to people it's because you're selfish thinking of yourself sensitive only to your own feelings having a pity party pouting thinking only of what's going to happen to me that causes insensitivity be sensitive alright you guys be sensitive to your wives don't be cruel to your wives show them mercy let's pray thank you Lord for this good hour pray that you'll give journeying mercies now to all of those that go on these wet streets we pray that you'll give us a good day and Lord just make it possible for all of us to be here tonight and enjoy the conclusion of the missionary conference we'll praise you for that in Jesus name Amen have a good day man the Lord bless you